0: In their problems to me for as long as i can remember i have one of those faces that just says tell me what's going on and now i have one of those podcasts that says go ahead tell me what's going on welcome to mess in progress hey everybody and welcome to mess in progress with myself gina Brianna, my lovely co-host slash everything person is Catherine g mendoza Catherine, say hi to the people hi to the people Oh, it's beautiful. That was perfect. That was very, that was very elegant. That was very sweet and, and thoughtful. I'm drinking coffee for the first time in a very long time, so I'm a bit wired. So, ew, you know,
1: COVID.
0: COVID.
2: And by the way, we're saying ew because she has a mug that's um from Schitt's Creek. What's yes. her
0: name? The uh, sister character. Alexis.
2: Yes. Alexis, yes. And she's always like, ew, David.
0: Ew, David. Ew, what? Yes. Me and so my brother do fun. impersonations of them all the time. And and so I got my brother this mug, my twin sister this mug, and I have one where it's Alexis and she's saying, Ew, COVID.
2: and love it. I love that. That's so, so great.
0: My my favorite new mug. I have a mug obsession. Um Speaking of mug obsessions, okay, there's no way to transition to this. (laughs) There's no, there's no, I was drinking a mug of coffee while watching Netflix. There's no transition to this, but we have to talk about um, something that a lot of people have brought to my attention, but it's just funny that you sent me a text message and this is, y'all have to know, this is how me and Kat we're always talking or texting or like, hey, did you watch this? Hey, did you video that? And we're always going back and forth. So she texted me and said, hey, did you watch the Social Dilemma? Literally the day I watched it, you <laughs> texted me, did you watch the Social Dilemma? And I was like, yo, okay, universe, I hear you. Watch this. I watched it. Watched it twice, as a matter of fact, because I knew I had missed certain things the first yeah. time. Because when you have a kid, like there's just information that just you're like listening for... I, I hear cries, all the phantom cries. I'm like, huh, he's crying. And like, no, he's sleeping. He's sleeping. You're <laughs> like,
2: he's not even in the house.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you're I'm like, but, you're but actually, I hear him. Yes. He's not here right now. He's <laughs> home with his dad. You're good. <laughs> I'm like, but someone's baby is crying somewhere.
2: Uh, <laughs> imagine, I just have to say this, but imagine if mothers could actually hear a cry, but the baby's like six blocks away. I heard? It <laughs> hasn't yeah. happened
0: to me yet, but since I'm breastfeeding, I heard... That if you hear, if you're near another baby and that baby cries, your boobs will start to leak. Yeah, because your body,
2: yes, yeah, your body hears the crying and goes, Oh, they want food.
0: My boobies don't have caller ID. They can't be like, That's not your baby. I know. <laughs> it's like, That's a baby. Feed that baby. Feed <laughs> the baby. So, real quick, what did you think of the social dilemma? Let's talk about this because this blew my mind, this whole thing.
2: So, I mean, I think that, like, for myself, uh, there was nothing shocking about it, right? Oh, like, I like
0: stuff that you know, but it, it's the way they blew the whistle on this stuff.
2: Yes. Um, I think that, like, uh, one thing I really liked about it was that, uh, uh, you know, for anybody who doesn't know, like, like, let's just read, like, a log line.
0: Yeah, so um, I was just going to say, like, let's explain to people who haven't seen it what this is about so they can figure out why people are talking about it.
2: Right. So the logline via IMDB is explores the dangers, human impact of social networking with tech experts sounding the alarm on their own creations, right? So basically, it's just a ton of people who work for Google and Facebook and Twitter, um, but like work for them. And like one of the guys created the like button. So, you know, they worked for them early on, right? When these models were being created. And they're basically just talking about how it's impacting society's um, mentality in the way that we think, in the way that we um, work, and basically that we are the machine, um, right? So it's very the matrix in some way that they're kind of explaining it. For me, I didn't, like, nothing shocked me, probably, though, because having worked at digital companies that worked so much with the Facebooks and the YouTubes, All we talked about was algorithms. All we talked about was how people's behavior. Now, mind you, I was talking about it on a very uh, micro level, right? I mean, uh, yeah, micro level. So I can only imagine the conversations being had at the actual tech companies because ours was a tech company slash my division was media. So again, I'm not shocked because I used a lot of these techniques to create videos, right? I, I knew people's behaviors and... I knew when I was in the news division, when BuzzFeed was starting, I'm not a journalist. I was making stuff using methods that were given to me that there were like um, credible sources, but I realized the ethics of it because how I approached that content that I was making at the time, um, everything from the song I picked to the way that I decided to color correct it, I knew how that would affect people. So that's me already as a creator knowing this. What they did in this film was show you how, like they said, they're programming intentionally. You think you're seeing something uh, like an ad or what or a video, and it's just like, oh, cool, yeah, it's just a video that came up next. But that, it's really made for you. Like, you know, I also think that we live in the t- in the TikTok um, era right now, yeah. and TikTok is the first platform. But again, it's not a company from the United States that honestly told people nah your feed is catered to you like TikTok told you that right but every company that's made in the United States
0: doesn't want us
2: to kind of like
0: know that oh yeah that's what I found interesting they try to be shady with it which is so funny because we already figured it out you know how many jokes I've heard from comics Mark Norman has an amazing joke about Google about just about that subject about whatever you're googling like you start to see ads for whatever it is. And we picked up on that early. I mean, I picked up on that early. I'd be like, especially now as a mom, I'm like, Oh wait, why, why would they, uh, why would they post something about Pampers on my, on my feed? Oh yeah. Cause there's a million pictures of my adorable ass son on my feed. And it's listening. Yes. It's listening. No,
2: if you have Siri and stuff like that, your phone is listening, and they ask you for these permissions. Like Google asks you for voice recognition. Like I've used Google Voice, mm-hmm. so I know that Google can listen to what. Not, I, I, I'm not, and I'm not like the man is listening. Not I don't, on
0: a conspiracy theory level, so. but what these people are saying in this documentary is that you have to understand how you are being used. Right. And as long as you understand that going in, you can take the necessary precautions like after watching this documentary, I'm not gonna lie to you. I deleted Facebook off my phone. I deleted Messenger off my phone. So if you want to reach me, you got to know me, know me. I um, killed all notifications. Like this is gonna screw the algorithm up because when I tell you I was on my phone. I was on my phone 24 seven because I'd get a notification or somebody liked the video or somebody did that. Somebody, and I would just go to it and be like, Oh, what video did they like? You don't even realize how you're getting trained by these apps to just right. go and be obsessed with them. It really is. They're forcing the um, addiction and the obsession.
2: Well, they like this. Uh, there's a few things I like that were said by certain people. One of them was, um, uh, it is certain people's jobs to actually uh, create things that interest you in order to see how much time of your life you're w- you're, a- you're willing to give us. Yes. And that says so much, right? And then there was this other thing that uh, in the documentary, it said, um, there are only two industries that call customers users, illegal drugs and software.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and then another quote was, if you're not paying for the product, then you are the product. Yes. And once again, Illegal drugs and software. It makes so much sense when you think about it, right? Like, I think that, like, you, you know, in, um, in like, uh, the hustle, like, when people are drug dealers, they do yeah. the first one's free mentality? Well, it's similar in that sense, except everything's free. Google's free. Facebook's free. But your information isn't, um, and it, it's not like they're selling your information
0: they get you to like, put it out there. They right, get but, you to put your info out there.
2: But I love that they explain that. Like a lot again, conspiracy theorists. A lot of people think, oh, they're selling your information to the government. Nah, they're selling your information even worse. They're selling it to corporations that want to sell
0: to you. So, to advertisers who know no, that. Sure, right sorry, I know the the sirens.
2: It, um, if I look at it like this. While you're worried about them selling your information to the government, consider the fact that like this is all about capitalism. That's what this documentary is talking about. And how much of your information do you want out there? But then how does it affect, and I love this, that they talked about um, political campaigns. How does it affect the way people are like thinking about things and and seeing things? Like like what
0: they said about Russia. They're like, Russia didn't do anything really illegal. They just did what Facebook's been using. They did what Facebook's been doing in a very messed up way. They used it nefariously, but they used it exactly how Facebook uses their software. So that's what, and that's what they were saying. Like nothing, nothing illegal was technically done, but they used the software and the algorithms to their advantage, for sure.
2: I think, I think like this would then require new policies, right? Sure. So like policies that discuss what, um, but here's the thing, this is about the free information market. Like we, we want to be able to have information, um, you know, worldwide. Mm-hmm. But there, there's that debate. When, um, when you think about Russia being able to tamper, even on that level, just like on a, on, a, on Facebook, even to that level, what kind of policy, can there be a policy put in place that would not allow a foreign country to affect what the American um, audience sees? Or, you know what I mean? At least politically. But how much of that then means that we're not in a, in a place where we're getting free information and information from no. everywhere. So it's a it's um the, the pendulum swings, right? I that's what I liked about it, that they kept talking about we made like this they were saying we made these technologies um with the intention of good and now we need to address the harm that it's done.
0: Yeah. I mean when they talk about I mean, apart from the advertisements and the fact that thing is tailored to you that those advertisements that you see on your page are tailored to you that the political things you see on your page are tailored to you you know is the self-esteem issues that you see with a lot of people and i'm not just talking about kids i know grown people who will put up a picture and constantly check to see how many likes they're getting I know grown people yeah, totally. that will not put up a picture unless it's taken at a certain angle in a, with a certain so filter. I have been one of those people, not even gonna front. So like no, I, but I that, mean, like there's people like I'm not gonna shout anybody. But it's but there's at every gonna yeah. There's
2: people who do extremes, and then there's even, even someone like me who I may not be like um checking to see if somebody's liking it every moment, but I do consider what image I put up or not that has a lot to do with the way that we are perceiving ourselves and our beauty and our bodies and all of that but but then again I think about like and it's so funny because I before I saw this um I think you and I had this conversation about how like I'm always talking about not having a butt but I'm always getting targeted with the booty machine um ads Cause they know they're
0: like. phone is like, uh, what now? did you say don't have a butt. Well, let's get you one then. Well, let's fix this situation right away.
2: And and it's so funny because it reminds me of like, um, and I hate to like put this on blast, but you know, in my family, my tias have been like infomercial queens, right? Like in the nineties and all of that, yo, I've had everything from the thigh master to the ab cruncher. I've had it all right. Because like, and especially even me as a kid I was like oh I want that and my mom would get it for me but like on discount discount but now I'm like yo it's no longer on tv like you know in the middle of the night now it's just in the middle of the day while I'm doing something else I scroll by and I can't help but realize that the first time I don't want it the second time I don't want it but after seeing it six times I'm like but do I want it? I've had to actively gone, um, you know, when you, you report it, but you go not relevant to me. Yeah. I've had to actively do that to some things because I start realizing I'm about to unnecessarily spend money.
0: Yeah. Because they get you I- with things that you want. Like they will get you with things that you want or things that you perceive that you need because you see it in that moment. And it's right. You may see the ad once and be like, Nah, I don't need that. That'd be cool, but I don't need it. And then you see it again and you're like, ah, what is the universe trying to tell me? So it's, like, it's not the universe It's oh, the people okay. that are selling this baby bed that you don't need Gina. Why did I buy it, Catherine? Why? Why did I buy that baby bed? Cause I saw it six million times. Yep. I'm telling you. And that's, that's just the, like, kind of, I mean, it's, once you know, you're so much more aware of it. The thing that bugged me out is when they tell you the slot machine thing, that the fact that when you go to your feed, especially let's say for Instagram, right? If you pull down on the screen, it loads a whole fresh new page of different things, like a slot machine. It's intentionally done like a slot machine so that you don't know what you're going to, you don't ever know when your luck is going to hit. You don't know what you're going to get, but it's going to be something tailored for you. And every time you pull that down, it's a new screen still tailored for you. You know, Just when you think that you're done and you fix the problem, nope, gotcha again. You're gonna scroll again. They're always gonna have something tailored for you. And the slot machine thing was done on purpose. Like that's such a crazy way of looking at how the human brain works.
2: I mean, oh, that's you froze. where like gambling.
0: For a second, you froze on Zoom and it froze in the cutest position. You were like <laughs> like your lips were pursed and you were just like pointing like you were going to make a point and it was like I was like intently looking at the screen like what is she going to say right now and you were right, like I'm
2: just going to start doing that freezing your real life <laughs> well um I want to do no, it in real like, conversations right um I, I feel like Yes, the slot machine is a really good metaphor, but it is not only a metaphor, it's a tactic, right? Yes. Because that's, that is what creates the addiction to the slots, like when you think of traditional um, uh, gambling problems. Yep. But in, in social media, I think it's also interesting when, when they just discuss how um, it's all, like everything from like even uh, uh, sending you arbitrary notifications when you yep. haven't been on your phone is a tactic. Right, like, and I and I, and one thing in the in the film, if you watch it to whoever's listening to this, um, I personally loved the the fact of um they kind of did recreations, but it wasn't really a recreation. It was yeah. like watching a um little mini film to prove the point, and I really liked that because it gave you it created a world that was very much in our world, right? And then it lets you see the common. A, you know, common person yeah. And, or this person was a young person. So I think that was um, intentional as well to make them very young. But something that's been very big for me, especially during this election year, it's um, older influential um, people, like uh, mm-hmm. especially Latinos where it's like, you know how like they had this whole thing where Floridas and Latinos were being sold, like were being told all these like conspiracy things about like the election. And that happened like maybe a week or two ago. It's stuff like that. It's like, we need to, it would have been interesting to see it from the perspective of older people who aren't of the digital age, but Facebook is now their best friend. Like I'm not on Facebook like that anymore. So I'm affected by Twitter and Instagram, but I'm not affected by Facebook anymore.
0: I'm a little more affected us. by, yeah, I'm not affected by Twitter at all, because I'm not really on Twitter like that, because Twitter became such a hot spot for, like, political debate, and I was just like, I don't feel like getting into that, I'm really using this as a distraction from everyday life, I'm not trying to get into that, and so I became obsessed with Instagram, for sure, and with, uh, now with TikTok, it used to be Instagram and Snapchat for a little bit, but then... You know, every, every generation takes over the young people's stuff. Like yep. when Facebook first came out, it was you know, all millennials. It was all these young people. And the older people started getting into Facebook. And then older people took over Facebook. And now that's where all the old people, all, all the old heads is on Facebook, right? Yep. Then Instagram came out and it was all young people. And it was like, oh, it's for young people. It was the death of Vine and the birth of like Instagram. And then old people came over to Instagram and then took over Instagram. Right, and now on TikTok, all I see is a bunch of boomers and older people taking over TikTok, and I'm like, wow! Every time young people start something, it's not—it's just—it's honestly just how it goes. You know what I mean? Like, it's just how I think this whole social media game works.
2: I agree. I think that, like, um, I feel like the reason for that is because new things come about, right? So, yeah. like um you know the zennial generation is definitely not affected by facebook right so they uh will have a different like there'll be a different way that the programming will affect them right so that's but again when you think about it um it's the older generation that still does have like um expendable income because now a lot of their kids have grown. (laughs) So now they have like this whole like fresh new way of like spending. So I think that that definitely works in like these companies favors. Um, but so they've noticed, they've noticed like, Oh, um, we're catering towards this demographic. They know this a hundred percent, you know, like recently I was having a conversation with some people over at like, um, Snapchat, I don't use Snapchat and, uh, that demographic is heavy Zennies. Like in my mind, Zennials, I mean, um, Snapchat is, hasn't been a thing for me for years. Yeah. But it's because it's not catered towards me any, like in, in any way, right? I truly feel, and I think this is where you and I are interesting because our generations like separately but similarly are being put in a position where we're not being targeted on Facebook. We're not being targeted on Snapchat or TikTok. You know, like, I think TikTok does understand that we're getting on there, but I still don't think TikTok is catering towards us. No. Like, they don't see us being the the ones creating the trends. We follow the trends, (laughs) Yeah, right? But Instagram and Twitter are still very much for my generation of yours. Yeah. Because, um, how do I say this? Twitter is still made for the people who started on Facebook when Facebook started having statuses. That's basically what Twitter is. Yep. It's Facebook statuses
0: by itself, right? It's Instagram. Facebook status after Facebook status, you know. Right. It just cuts all the fat. It's only right. Facebook status.
2: Instagram is a good medium between, um, well, now it's changing a bit to become like TikTok-y, but um, Instagram still has a feel of like a uh, social network that Facebook had. But um, it's always been um, uh, visual focused in a different way. It's always been image focused and now video focused. I think that appeals especially to the um, MySpace generation because the MySpace generation, you know, we programmed our stuff. It was all about aesthetics. How did things look? And I think in a weird way, Instagram still can feel like an aesthetic.
0: Right, like your feed still feels like an aesthetic. Again, I you completely your feed- forgot about MySpace. Like you said, MySpace now, and all I could envision was like an abandoned cemetery. Like that's what I think of MySpace as. Like <laughs> all the pages of yesteryear that have died, <laughs> that just live on MySpace.
2: I'm not gonna lie though. Like I think that um, MySpace had, to me, had way more. Like had it had its moment. But I I like to think that MySpace is the reason why a lot of people got interested in coding because you can't code your own pages. I mean, I wasn't that kid, but um, I don't think it gets a lot of credit, right? Like I think Facebook came along and just basically took a concept and upped it.
0: Yeah. Right? Oh, absolutely. Facebook took what MySpace did and just upped the ante and just made it, cleaner, almost. I felt like MySpace was really busy. Like when you were on MySpace pages, they just had a lot going on. When you were on, you know, when you were on MySpace, there was a lot of distractions, I felt, you know, just like flash. There was a lot of flash on MySpace. You know, it was like the AOL of its, you know, when AOL first came out, it was like, oh, look at this new thing. And that's kind of MySpace's feel. And then what Facebook did was give you like a more sophisticated look with the same basic principles as myspace create a page it's your own thing you have your friends you know i remember when top friends were a thing
2: on myspace yeah
0: yeah and yeah. so like it, it was, it's very interesting because even when facebook first came out i was like oh this is like the new myspace that was my mentality was this was the new myspace
2: thanks it's so interesting because, like, I have um I have a few theories about anybody who was in their twenties yeah during the MySpace era, because I feel like a lot of the people who were in their twenties during the MySpace era were using it very differently than um teens during the MySpace era. Yeah. So I feel like the twenties, of the twenty year olds in in that time in the early two thousands, a lot of them were the first wave of entrepreneurship through the internet, right? So no matter what your like skill was, it was the first time people started also using their pages as in like business pages. So if you were like a small apparel business or even comics, right? Like putting it out there. Now that was like a a way of like promotion that didn't exist online prior to that. So, but the teens, right? We didn't have anything to promote at the time for that. Yeah. So, I mean, like, what are you promoting? The party that you're going to? No, we weren't, it wasn't, you know, I mean, unless you were, like, a little hustler, but the hustlers I knew were the ones who, like, sold candy in school. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're, they're Costco Most of the
0: hustlers weren't putting their business out on social media. You know what I mean? There was Yo, I'm gonna be selling these
2: Snickers in the lunchroom,
0: third period. <laughs> Holla at me, third period, lunchroom. I got Snickers, I got Kit Kats, and I got fruit snacks. I got the fruit snacks. snacks. Real quick. Fruit you want the blue bag. Which bag you want? I got the mixed bag, yo. <laughs> yup, like, I think that... But how
2: did that transition, right? Yeah. So, I actually think it's weird because, um, you know, you and I are... And I always say this to people. We're on the cusp of different generations. Yep. Like, we're not 20 years apart, right? That's, like, generational gaps. Yeah. We're on the cusp of two different generations, but what makes us very different is the internet the worldwide web and what m- how my generation got it a little bit early i mean a little bit earlier than you but much later well,
0: what you guys got was the updated version of everything yeah. we went through cuz my generation went through the we ain't got no internet wow. oh we got internet oh this internet is trash oh this is really way better now like it's right. just this thing this progression and you guys weren't old enough To recognize the progression, but my generation was just there. If you were poor, you were because if you were poor, then you didn't have. But if you were poor, you had that whack internet. You had that whack dial up because that's all your parents could afford.
2: Right, like when I watch um, Pen Fifteen, they're my they're my age in that show, but I don't relate because you know I didn't have a computer in my bedroom when I was in junior high school but that has more to do with economics than age but yes economically sound if you could have access to the internet I think this is why I relate so much to generations prior to me because the economics kind of kept me behind yeah um either way when myspace came about I now was in high school right so now I do have a computer now it's now like the equilibrium Mm-hmm. has changed because even if you are econo- like not as economically well off as someone else, you still got the internet. So I think that like a lot of the people who were in their 20s during the MySpace era really t- transitioned well. Um, a- a Some of them, I've, I've met a lot to the Instagram era. And the reason is because Instagram was another way to sell yourself really well, right? Facebook wasn't fully that for so long it wasn't about like um your business yes you could put businesses on there but there was just a different aesthetic to being a a a business owner like a small business owner of apparel on Instagram compared to Facebook there's just something different about that so Facebook to me was about clicks in a different way than top five I mean top eight
0: yeah
2: right top eight was just like this is me letting everybody know who I messed with. I'm, I'm announcing it. Yeah. Facebook was like, um, if you are in my circle, yeah. then you are in my friends. And so we used a lot of groups. So yeah. in a weird way, we were already doing the catering information to each other because we... We're being friends, and if you're friends, then we were seeing each other's comments on each other's walls because we were all already friends. We were literally teaching the system the potential. So we were yeah. the guinea pigs, like, you know what I mean? Like that first generation was the guinea pigs of like what our, what, what now Facebook is because of how we um, showed that we really influenced each other by what we shared and what we liked and how we commented on things. Like, I remember when the like button came out I remember when statuses like started. Because I remember, because I remember the status used to say, um, Catherine uh, uh, is, like it would give you like a, a, yeah. a, it would say your name and then it would say is and then you have to finish it. So if you go And then back, I went
0: from that to like, how are you feeling today? Right. So what's the on your mind?
2: Yes. Like, and it's so funny because it's like if you looked now, like if you were to look at somebody's page from like, oh, nine. or or maybe seven, let's say seven. I don't know when the statuses came out, but you look, some of the statuses seem like incomplete sentences because we were completing prompters that then didn't post. So the prompter doesn't post. All it is is like, Catherine is feeling hungry. So the status is feeling hungry. hungry. (laughs) It makes us look illiterate. If you go back, I'm telling you.
0: Oh yeah, totally. I totally came off as illiterate with a lot of those. I I did not realize for the longest time that that first part isn't shown to everybody. Yep. And I was just like, why does everybody make fun of my statuses? (laughs) That doesn't seem fair to me. I think they're pretty good statuses. That's so, I mean, that's so funny because it's like,
2: I think about those to me at that time, right? And the way that you use um, the internet. One thing that's known now is, there's nobody. I mean, probably like older people, really, really older people are different, but there's nobody of us of maybe like third, I mean 40 below,
0: yeah.
1: who
2: doesn't understand that everything on the internet is forever.
0: Yeah.
2: Right? So I do think now we're more cautious. But but again, the guinea big generations, your generation, my generation, those generations, yo, we got some stuff out there. And it's like, this is why I do think people need to be understanding like if you sounded a little bit dumb.
0: <laughs> oh, I always sound dumb in my, my post. Let me just tell you something. Even now, I always forget to proofread. And I will definitely 100% misspell something. Or put like a word that's wrong and then I read it over and you know, I have people, you know who always corrects me? My brother. My brother will dm me and be like um like one of those like star like asterisk things it's like i think you mean (laughs) y-o-u-apostrophe-r-e like he does that all the time and my brother will just hit me up and be like "Hmm, you spelled that wrong i think you should repost that with the correct spelling
2: i don't mind when it's like yours or stuff like that because i'm dyslexic so i don't that doesn't bother me when people do that you know what i mean and then plus i'm always like dude I grew up in the public school system. Like, they did not, they taught us that, but they didn't enforce it to the same level um, yeah. that I realized. I didn't realize until college that I was like, yo, we really was like, they were like, ah, you you kind of got it. Go to the exactly. next school, kid. You kind like, of got it there. You can't. You figure it out. You figure it out. You're um, still figuring out life. But I don't like, I correct when people use words incorrectly. Like, yeah. when, when it's obvious, you don't even understand what you're saying, I'm sorry, like.
0: It is the best.
2: And I will hit a friend up, but like, on the low. Yeah. You know, well, I'm not always gonna put people on blast blast, you know what I mean? But like, I might text you and be like, yo.
0: Oh, our guest is here. Hold up, hold up, wait a minute. Oh, I'm about to get into it. Okay, all right. <laughs> We're gonna put a pause on that conversation real quick. To introduce our guest, uh, let us introduce Emmy Award winner and filmmaker Christina Costantini. I'm gonna say it real slow because I don't want to mess up her name. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest for today!
2: Yay! Yeah. In the Zoom
1: <laughs> crowd
0: goes crazy. We're giving you Zoom applause. Hi. Hi. Well, welcome to the show, uh, Catherine. I know you've been in talks with Catherine. This is Catherine. I'm Gina Brion. Uh, this is our lovely podcast, Mess in Progress. I want to know if I've said your last name correctly. Now, this was bugging me before we even went on. I literally- oh, no, we're recording. Oh, yeah. sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, that's fine. I um, practiced saying your name. Uh, <laughs> Costantini. Is that like...
1: Oh, yay! Hey, that's great. Oh. Costantini, yeah, Costantini, whatever, whatever you want to say. It sounds but, very, uh, very Italian,
0: like Costantini.
1: It is Italian, and my grand, my grandpa's family is from Italy, and then they migrated to Argentina, so I'm yeah. an Italian, Argentin- Argentinian. Oh, beautiful. Well, that brings us to our first set of questions,
0: which is our, our rapid fire questions. You get three questions, answer them in whatever importance you see fit. Um, the first one, where are you from? Second one, what is your zodiac sign? And third one, how did you get started as a journalist and ultimately a director?
1: Ooh, okay. So I am um, Argentinian. Uh, my dad is from Argentina. I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is, there are not a lot of Latinos there, um, which is how, why I watched Walter a lot with my grandma. It was He was like, Walter Mercado, of course, was of my connection to the latin world and to that part of my culture and uh i am a libra and Ooh. so you know very balanced walter my co-director of the movie *Karin tap she's also a libra and he would tell us that we were um very diplomatic but at times and, and creative but at times impossible that's what he like He very stubborn um, and then What was my third question? It's escaped my brain. How did you get started as a journalist? How did I get started? That's a longer one. Um, I, right out of college, um, became a reporter. I, you know, I think I was interested in telling stories generally. And uh, I remember, you know, growing up, there being just this huge difference between the stories that I would see on Univision about immigrants and then the stories I would see in English about immigrants and there's just like a huge disconnect which is like wait we're the heroes in this kind of media and then in this kind of media somehow we're like the villains for coming over here and working really hard and raising our families and like not committing crimes so I would say I want to help report about our community in English and help kind of you know bridge that gap a bit um yeah And so I started reporting on the Latino community, immigration, um, mostly immigration, but detention centers, um, sex trafficking, eventually did a documentary on um, fentanyl, which is an opiate. But um, I was working for Huffington Post and then ABC News and Univision um, and their little baby called Fusion. And uh, that was a lot of Fun, I learned a ton about reporting and people and how to tell stories and even just like the nuts and bolts of how to make a documentary. Um,
0: yeah.
1: But I was very intense. It's a very like uh, hard thing. I think all of those topics, you know, are very heavy. So being around those um, all the time was hard. It was really hard. So I, uh, I needed a mental break and I had always been a big fan of documentaries. I'd always hoped someday maybe I could make a documentary. And I thought, well, maybe now's my chance. So I went to my bosses at Univision, Keith Suma and Isaac Lee. And I said, I know I'm an investigative reporter, but hear me out. I want to make a feature documentary in English about the International High School Science Fair. And they were like, Oh, okay. I mean, to their credit, I think 99.999% of people would be like, no, you're like on salary, on staff, we're not going to pay for you to make a documentary. But they were—they believed in me and they believed in the idea. And uh, they let me go make this feature. It was my first film. And, um, you know, I submitted to Sundance with my co-director, Darren Foster, and our producer, Jeff Plunkett. And I was like, you know, we would joke about a Sundance premiere. It was such a long shot. None of us had ever done a feature film before. And, uh, and then we got in and that totally changed. That was the beginning of like, you know, being a filmmaker for the rest of my life. I hope, um, I'm so lucky people keep paying me, but, uh, there we won the, um, festival favorite award, which was the overall audience award. And that was wild and that really put the film on a track to be sold and then we we kept doing festivals and it was doing well at the festivals and people were talking about it and 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 that helped me you know sell the next one or make the next one and so you know it's kind of now I guess I'm a filmmaker and so um it's it's been like a really uh, I, I've been super lucky and I think like I I, I count yeah. You know, I'm just so grateful to all the people who helped me along the way. And and, and yeah, although, you know, as I'm sure you guys are aware, it comes with like, you you have to take so many risks and try so many things that you fail at. And then every once in a while, somebody lets you do something uh, that maybe you're not prepared to do. And that's, and then you just keep, keep, keep growing. So that's my story. That was a long answer. I'm sorry.
0: (laughs) No, that was a good, that was a nice long answer. Some people have two word answers and then we're like, oh, all right. <laughs> well, that was it. Okay, then. Well, that was something different. Um, speaking of Sundance, which you brought up, and of course the Walter um, Mercado documentary, you are one of the directors of the 2019, for people who don't know, the 2019 Sundance film and Netflix hit, Mucho, Mucho Amor, The Legend of Walter Mercado. So, how did you feel about the reception of the film itself, you know, in the Latinx community and just in general? How did you feel about that?
1: I mean, we had no idea like that, you know, well, we knew it, we knew we loved Walter. And and I think the hope was, you know, that everybody else would still have that feeling of love for Walter that we had. And and we had been pitching this documentary around, you know, after, after the success of Science Fair, I thought, well, great, like the next one's gonna be so easy. But what I hadn't accounted for was that like, there were no Latino execs really in most of these rooms. So you know you would come and you would pitch this this story about this gender queer like cape wearing psychic, and people would be like, oh that sounds like an interesting story, but like, can you provide me with some data to show me like what a big deal he was? And so we were like trying to find data of his viewership numbers in the 80s and 90s all throughout Latin America and the U.S. And it was just really hard to to make the case. And it wasn't until that, till we actually found a Latino executive who was able to say like, yeah, like and to tell his like white friends, like l- listen, like this is, people will like this. And so he like really believed in us and that idea. And then when it came out, you know, we had been pitching it and pitching it and pitching it. And then there's that moment where you're like, well, I, I, I hope that we are right. I hope that like actually people will remember and love and want to watch him. And so sure enough, like there, there was a lot of support for it, but I think we really were not prepared we were really had no idea. I remember the moment it like really, um, really hit me it was like the day of the release. Uh, I think the producer Alex Fumero he texted me like search Bill Bakula on Twitter, and I was like, what? Like maybe one person has has tweeted about him. Bill is like you know the, the was Walter's manager, and it's like a very specific spelling, and I typed it in, and it was just like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of tweets and I was like oh my god not only are people watching it they're then going to Twitter to talk about one character in the film and then they're spilling his name right like that is so it was that I think was the moment where I was like whoa I don't I didn't know I, I didn't know and so nothing we were not prepared for the uh for the viewership numbers we got or the like internet support. Um, we were, we were nervous. We really, he's such an icon for us. We just really wanted to do, do him justice and make people feel proud and like make people remember those moments with their abuelitas watching him and, you know, the warm fuzzies that he gave us. We wanted to, uh, capture that. So we were, we were shocked. No one was more surprised than we were at the, out. Uh, no, okay. oh, yeah, I mean, I think that what's very interesting is how, um, you know, I, there
2: was a lot of discussion about it at the time, and, um, and that was, like, July. So it was, like, in the middle of the pandemic, and I feel like that was very interesting, because, like, even myself, I have quarantined with my mother, so we watched it together, and that was that was almost, like, in itself, a little bit of, like, my childhood in that moment, because, like, I got to talk to, like, watch it and talk to her about, like, how I felt, but I was a kid, right? But she was an entire adult. So she has an entirely different experience of him. But right. I then talked to like friends about it. And we talked about like, you know, to say the stars aligned on the fact that you guys started the project when you started, especially as, you know, the end came closer to like, you know, him him passing away. It's almost like it was meant to happen. Because I, 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 I really felt that way. Like I was telling my friends, I was like, you realize that if they would have probably contacted him a year later, any any time after than they did, it's a different it's a different project. I'm like it it came out exactly when it should have, and it's almost as if you guys were the people who were supposed to do it. You know what I mean? Because I did hear um of one of your talks, like with with your producer and co director about how the story came about. You guys like the phone calls and all of that, and how it was like a, an estate sale that one of your, uh, I think it was your co-director, yes. had went to a Walter estate sale, but simultaneously a conversation between you and one of the filmmakers was happening. Like that's, you know, what, what he would say in the stars.
1: In, in the a- stars, yeah. According to the stars, it was perfect. I think he would say that we, the three of us, are all kind of like, you know, we love Walter and we love astrology, but are kind of skeptics. We're like, well, who knows? You know, I'm not like, maybe I'm agnostic. When it comes to astrology, but there are moments that happen, things like that. Just you know, the the story is basically I called the this the producer Alex Romero because I knew he was a big fan of Walter, and he had in he was like, this is the craziest thing. There's another director that I actually have signed, have agreed to have um like work on this project with. We haven't even made contact with Walter, but we're supposed to talk in 10 minutes. Would you be willing to get on that call? And it was basically like, this never, ever, 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 ever happens in film. But we got on a call and the three of us were like, okay, this is the team, let's do it. Let's go, like, let's make this movie. We'll do it together. and he was like Kareem, Christina. Would you co-direct? And we were like, sure. Never met each other once. I had seen his short Dolphin Lover and loved it, um, but had never met. We had some mutual friends, but luckily we have the same sense of humor and the same love for Walter, and we had a very similar vision for what we wanted the project to be. And so we all like agreed, let's do it. But it just—it's just—it's—it's it's crazy that it happened that way. Um, You know, the other thing is, yeah, like you were saying, when we finished it, we we had to make a call at one point. We didn't have financing for the film. We were, we had only raised, I mean, a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction of what we needed. And we had to make the call at some point. We were like, do we wait and, and try to raise the money and do it like, you know, the way that it should be done? Or do we go in, none of us get paid. We're asking for favors from all of our friends and doing it really cheap do we do that because we're just getting older and we decided to do it that way which it, had we not it wouldn't the the movie wouldn't exist you know had we not like the 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 um you know the industry ha- didn't buy into it until it was basically done and so we had to just say like fuck it like this sorry i don't know if i yeah, can swear good. but like you're no, <laughs> no cuz that's like,
2: hey, is-
1: good and that's honestly
2: <laughs> the way you make films. It's something like that, where you literally have to have that moment with whoever you're collaborating with. And you're like, "I, I hate like, do or die. Do it now or don't, because
1: it's not going to happen any other way. Right, right. We have to believe in it. And then other people will believe in it when it's basically done. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the other, like, you know, we submitted the film to Sundance on November 1st and Walter passed away on November 2nd um the following day so there are things like that where you're just like that's crazy you know i I think at some level walter knew he had finished his job that his job was done so you know it's it's crazy but you're right it could not have happened at any other time it was the very last moment we could have made that film so you know it we're so grateful to have been able to spend time with him. He really is a gem. He really, really, I was ready, I was skeptical. I'm an investigative journalist by training. I was ready to be like, whoever it is that I find, the man behind the cape, that's the man that will show. And he he ends up being as lovable as you want him to be. You know, not perfect, but definitely lovable.
0: Yeah. What would you say was like the biggest lesson that you learned? in the, during the process of everything, of working with Walter, from Walter, Willie, the whole experience? Like, what was the biggest thing you came away with?
1: You know, I, I think what I just, by watching Walter so much and seeing how he interacted with the world, he really approached everything from a place of love. And so much of the, you know, so much of life nowadays is the internet, our leadership, so much comes out of hate. There's so much that is derived from division and, you know, these people aren't like me for this reason and these people aren't like me for this reason. But Walter really always sought to make connections between people and always, you know, would seek to make people feel good and to to lead out of a place of love. And I think that that is so rare. And I just tried to study it and, and tried to figure out like, how do you lead from a place of love? It's much harder than leading from a place of like, derision and and um hatred and cynicism so i think you know maybe it's corny but his 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 central message which is just like practice love it's kind of it's pretty radical to like yeah. you could try to love everybody it's a really it's it's very, very hard much easier much harder than hatred i think or you know
0: yeah he could have been a much come, um I feel like watching, having watched the documentary, Walter could have been in a much darker place based on everything that happened in his life and everything that had happened to him. And the fact that he took everything with a grain of salt and the fact that he was so forgiving to the people that had really kind of done him dirty, that there was, you didn't see a lot of anger. You didn't see a lot of malice. You didn't see a lot of hate. What you saw was somebody who genuinely does lead with love that was genuinely hurt by people. He was hurt by people, but he never let that affect his ability to love people which I think was one of the more beautiful parts of the documentary.
2: I I also felt like, and this was very interesting because, you know, like watching him younger, you're just watching those segments, right? You never, you're not really watching these overall conversations with this person. You don't know this person. So that's why it makes sense. when you met him. You didn't really know what you were going to get into, right? Like, is the person the same that they are on camera, the same person you meet in person? Something I did think was, um, And I just, in listening to you guys talk about, like, your experience filming him and him being a media professional, so how much, like, he knew exactly what he, his image was and his brand was, it almost seemed, please tell me if I'm wrong, that he was really good at, because he led with kindness, there was also boundaries, like, don't Mm -hmm. pass this. And I think that's Mm -hmm. something that's very important, like, that I didn't even think about in his character, where I was like, nah, if he's not trying to talk about something, that's a boundary, like, don't. don't do it and if he didn't have a boundary his people around like the the nieces or there was a boundary there was like the do's and the don'ts but all through kindness and love because that's where the lessons were
1: in where it was like fool me once and i kind of got out of the message when i watched it totally yeah you know he was he really there were things that we thought like okay we're gonna be the people who can finally get walter to talk about you know the fact that maybe he's dated men or you know that he has male lovers and like no like that he is a media trained professional who knows what he wants to talk about and knows what he doesn't want to talk about and we had many 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 conversations with him off camera and whenever the cameras came on he would do exactly what you see him do in the film which i love which is like you know he wants to define himself that's fine it's not my job to to try to get him to do something that he doesn't want to do. Yeah. But I love that he's always in control of the conversation. You know, my co-director asks him, he we we're skirting the issue, we're talking about it, and he says, Well, Walter, you're not telling me you're a virgin. And he like squares up to the camera and goes, The only one in town. And I just <laughs> love that response. Because he's like, he's always one step ahead. He's always yes. smarter than you are. He's always like, he knows how to throw you off balance and like when he makes you laugh you then as an interviewer which i'm sure you guys can appreciate you just like you lose your you're distracted you're like yeah. you're, you, you go on to the next subject and that's exactly what he would do he would surprise us and make us laugh and flirt and he would get around everything that he, want, he didn't want to talk about and uh i think it was amazing you know we could be accused i'm sure of like not getting to the bottom of that issue but to me that wasn't that wasn't the point of the film. Yeah. But it
0: was also beautifully executed by Walter. I mean, just watching him skirt questions and in a way where it was like, oh, yeah, that is none of our business. You're right. Let's move on. Like, he just had a really great way of letting you know that's really not your concern.
2: Right. 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 And, and it's like, not last all, media. it's just, it's not yeah. his-
0: right yeah it's right. just not your concern like why why are we even talking about this which i think is such a great right. attitude for anybody to have but particularly somebody in the public eye like he like he was
1: totally and and, and you know i think latin media is like has kind of this mean gossipy side to it yes. sometimes like it's the spanish language like gossip journalism and so he had been asked that in much meaner ways in much more accusatory like what are you hiding from people yeah kind of sounds. and uh and so that's part of the reason he was so good at getting around it. It was like, you know, people have been mean to him, really mean. And, and like he could feel a lot of, you know, hatred towards those people or, you know, dislike those people. But he, he really always did kind of like brush it away. As Willie said, He so took an I don't care pill. <laughs>
0: <laughs> he took his I don't care pill daily, which is a pill yeah. we all need to take more of.
1: Yes,
2: right? exactly. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I think that, so like um what, when I think about that and then we, you know going back to what you said earlier with um your first project science fair, um, you know I know that like in, in things in, in interviews you've talked about um your filmmaking and how you you feel like um your job is to t- uh, you know not only talk to yourself like people who know the, the in crowd. So in this situation, Latinos who know Walter, but it's also reaching outside of that. And so I know that you have a background in science, like just your own like um, um, childhood and probably spoke to you personally, Science Fair. But even the way you tackled that film and then the way you tackled um, uh, Mucho Mucho Amor, it was, you know, Gina and I, when the film came out, there were people who weren't Latino that we knew who were watching. So yeah. clearly your work does do that, right? But do you, um, do you feel like there's anything in particular you consider? Like now that you've already kind of done that twice in two very different ways, because you know, one is your Latino uh, heritage and then the other one is like, you know, your interest in science and that. But those are two things that if somebody isn't Latino or isn't into science can still enjoy these films. How do you now like approach something else? And what do you consider initially that maybe, you know, somebody wouldn't think of when they're creating something for everyone? Or that can appeal to
1: everyone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's a really fun challenge um, and like honor to be able to do. But I do like telling stories that are that are bridges in some way. So whether it's from like the scientific community to the non scientific community, I wanted to, to do a film about science that wasn't like you know. Dry and boring and preaching to the choir. I wanted to do a movie about science that other people would watch and be like, "Oh my God, science fair is lit!" And it is lit. And people don't know that about the science fair. But I I competed in the science fairs when I was in high school, and it was one of the most fun things in the world. So I wanted to kind of share that joy. Similarly, you know, I I would always find myself in college, and uh, you know, afterwards, telling people about Walter. And telling him, telling people about how lucky we were to grow up with this magical, mystical creature who came into our televisions every, every day and told us beautiful things and made us feel good. And and I similarly told stories about Science Fair and all the funny things that happened. So I tend to gravitate towards stories that I love sharing and 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 things that are personal to me that I think other people should know about. And so. Um, you know, I love being a bridge of, of that sort, and and drawing on my personal experiences to to do that. Um, and I, yeah, you know, I think there is just so much division and seg- like segmentation of society nowadays that it's fun to tell stories. I think that can can speak to not just Latinos and or not just science the scientific community, but you know, it, it's a challenge. It really is because. Part of the, the struggle with this was I wanted to make something we all wanted to make something that was authentic and felt real and wasn 't just like um, like making Walter consumable to white people that was not the idea it was to it, or to non latinos it was it was to do something that felt very authentic and like you know we were inside your your abuelita's living room um, and do something that could be understood by other people as well so it's a challenge it's not easy and it's a lot of like oh well do we do this line in English or do we do this line in Spanish and you know it's a constant conversation of like what is the right kind of uh, ratio um and how do we not just in language but how much explaining do we have to do yeah Uh, you know what I mean how much backstory do people want like I think Latinos for example probably they already know Walter they don't need you to tell them why he's important they just want to see him like in his tights when he was dancing as a kid and like, you know what I mean so it's a it's a fine balance but um a fun one I think it's the the challenge is part of the fun of the job I think yeah I mean I I, I almost want to
2: say like just having watched the things that you've put out I don't think every single one the journalistic is very like um uh, t- out for the truth and to tell a story that is meaningful. But the, the, the two that we're discussing, the science fair and Mucho Mucho Amor, seem to o- also have a theme of um, joy, like you mm-hmm. said. And so it's kind of like, I, I do feel like it makes sense also why your, your work would be on a Netflix and a Disney Plus because that is a common thread in like the human experience from a place of joy, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I, um, I think I left both of those feeling a little bit joyful, just kind of being like, but I didn't even notice it, right? Like I was just kind of like, "Eh, that was, it made me feel good. But that's like, that's, um, as a filmmaker, I just think that, you know, some things, uh, I'm sure as a journalist, some things make people feel reflective, but a lot of your
1: uh, films make people feel joyful. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that's, that's definitely what I was going for. I think making the films, for me was like a form of therapy from, you know, all of the scary things in the world that we're all dealing with. Um, Both films came out of a place of needing to find joy in in life. And so that's that's great that they brought you joy too.
0: (laughs) Um, That has a lot to do with another quote that we found of yours (laughs) that I loved uh, because I completely agree with it. Uh, about the best advice you ever got being, "Don't work with assholes." Uh, yes. <laughs> as a, as a journalist, you you know, do you have any tips on how to spot an asshole within like the first meeting? Do you have oh, any my- telltale signs?
1: I mean, people who use, uh, my. Uh, my like uh, the thing that really gets me is when people use a bunch of phrases that don't mean anything like when they use like cliches and and when they're I, I don't know like bragging a whole bunch and not talking about the other people that were on projects that made the projects good to me there's always this there's like this in Hollywood I feel like there's really this singular male genius idea that like projects are good because there was a singular male genius on on, on board. And I, I feel like that is incredibly dishonest. That that projects are good mostly because there's a team of really smart people behind them, all collaborating, all putting their best forward. And and that's actually how really great stuff and even stuff that looks like there's a singular male genius, there's usually a few like really dope badass women like right behind them. Um, and so so people who talk about like their incredible, uh, unique genius without telling you the names of the other people that they worked with. Those people, that's a red flag for me.
0: (laughs) That's actually, that's a really good point that I think a lot of people don't pay attention to. Pay attention to who people are acknowledging when it comes to a project and who they are leaving out. You know, if they're very me centric, I mean, that would be a huge red flag of like, and I've only met one or two people in the industry, lucky enough, that have been (laughs) like that, but it's a very big red flag when you hear them talking about that. Um, So what is, what is on the horizon for you? Like, what, what are you considering next? Any scripted features or another documentary? Like what's going on in your world?
1: Yeah, well, I don't, I don't have any exciting, you know how these things work. They're not real until they're real. And so you're like you're not really allowed to talk about them until like you're allowed to. So I'm not allowed to, but I, you know, definitely Latino stories, definitely documentaries. Um, I have a couple scripts that I've written um, and those that I'm trying to make. Um, So I'm just, I'm just trying to have fun and learn new skills. I also think like, you know, I came from journalism and then taught myself how to be a filmmaker in docs, in the doc space. And I want to keep Keep trying new and radical things, which is hard, you know, the way, when you don't have formal training. But um, you know, it's a fu- it's fun. It's it's really fun. It keeps you. I, I love I love like learning new things constantly and and uh, yeah, working with great people. So hopefully, I can keep doing all those things. That's awesome. Like I, especially that you're like interested in going into features because I think a lot of people
2: like stay in a medium, right? Like, um, but that is kind of like the You've taught yourself everything, so you know you can teach yourself this next skill and get into that. Because you know some people do um, go to college just for documentary filmmaking, and that's their career, and that's, that's amazing. But I, I just think in the time that we're in, you literally can teach yourself anything and find another way to tell a story. Like, I'm sure you can tell certain stories as a doc or some as a
1: narrative. It depends on the challenge you want to take and what's best for the story, so that's awesome. Yeah, exactly. I I think my parents and I think a lot of like immigrant kids probably have this too. My parents gave me a a lot of like confidence that like you, education is not the only thing that that like education shouldn't be your barrier from trying things. You know, they started when they were 23. I think they started a furniture business together and and everyone at the time was like, what the hell are you doing (laughs) like you don't know anything about running a business and uh and they were making rustic willow furniture very very small and they still are they're in milwaukee wisconsin they have a, a little furniture company that they run together and they've made you know a life out of it and and i think they're kind of just like radical and and immigrants have this like so many immigrants have this where it's just like yeah it, like, I'm going to try it. Why not? Like, i got to make money. So yeah. I think they they always taught me, like, don't don't let people tell you you can't do something because you don't have the right training for it. It's like, you'll learn, you'll make a lot of mistakes, and you'll learn, and you'll get better. So I try to, I'm thankful for that kind of delusional confidence <laughs> that, no, that they instilled. Not <laughs> it's not, not delusional at all, no.
2: It's motivated. It's like, uh, it's filled with a lot of, like, hope. You know, oh. like,
1: listen, yeah. if, you, if you fall on your face, then you get up. Right, exactly.
0: Which is the going to lot of parents it. that would be like, you're going to do what? You're <laughs> insane. So you want that kind of attitude of like, yeah, go for it. We're crazy too. Let's start a furniture store. <laughs> like,
1: Exactly. Exactly. No, I'm so, so lucky. And that, I hope, is something like, yeah, that is invaluable. Just the, whenever I tell them I'm doing a new thing, they're like, oh, Okay. Great. And like that sounds fun. That sounds fun. <laughs> but, yeah. look at that. That sounds amazing. You're gonna be an astronaut? Right. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. No, that I'm really lucky. I have very, the most supportive parents in the
0: that's world. Awesome. Um yeah. well we have a, a segment on the show that's called Dear Gina. It's where people write into the show and we give them advice. So uh this week's Dear Gina, I will let us all answer uh whatever times. I'll go to you first and then go to Kat. Um Dear Gina, is it possible for someone to love a person even if they don't respect them? No, next question. Um, well, here's, here's the issue. Um, I, run into this, uh, I run into this question a lot with people that are in toxic relationships, which is a huge red flag. Ah, if somebody is not respecting you, respect is a part of love. You have to know that going in. When you love someone, it's almost natural that you respect them. You respect their opinions. You respect who they are as a person. You respect their space. Now, what I will say that a lot of people can be guilty of in relationships, and me and Catherine have talked about this, is forgetting to be courteous to your partner because you're, so, you're, you're more thoughtful of other people outside of your relationship because there is an expectation of your partner to always understand and forgive you sort of like the expectation that your family will love you no matter what and will never give up on you no matter what which in itself is not true because people are human beings and they're you know they're going to you know throw in the towel they're going to give up you still need to have that underlying respect with each other in any kind of loving relationship i don't care if it's a romantic relationship or a family relationship if someone is not being respected, you need to speak up because that is a part of love. I love you, also should stand by. I respect you. So I will throw it now to Christina. You can give the advice that you'd like.
1: No, I, I, I think um, well Walter loves everybody. I'm not sure Walter respects everybody. Maybe he's the only one who can who can get away with both. But no, I, I think like you respect is part of love. Like you if you if you're loving somebody. You've got to respect yeah. some part. Of you might not have to respect every choice that people make or every single part of their essence, but I think certainly you must have a large amount of respect when you love somebody. It seems like they're tied. They're, they're definitely part of the same feeling for me. And I agree. I agree. <laughs> Catherine?
2: Um. I mean, I think you you kind of tackled it, like about um, the differences between uh, relationship and family. So I think that's where I one thing when I heard this question, I was like, "Who's the person? Like, is it your is it your family member or is it a partner? See, because the thing is, there's a lot of family members who I love innately and will always love, but I don't respect. So in that regard, yes, you can love and and not respect someone in that sense because that's just the built-in thing about sometimes family right? But in the context of actual, like the people we choose, no, that's what a different version of like the toxic we make and the toxic we, we accept, right? So yeah, you can have love for them, but from afar, because you don't respect them because either you're going to let yourself get hurt or you're going to hurt them. So that's where people say, love them from afar. Meaning I have really good, like I, I, I wish you well, but this is not going to go well without respect. So um, the answer to me is yes,
0: but it's circumstantial. Yeah. Very interesting. <laughs> uh, that, well, uh, thank you, Christina, for joining us. Tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find your projects. Have at it.
1: Uh, my Instagram and my Twitter are at XtinaTini. And um, my, let's see, the movie is Mucho uh, Amor Movie, I think, yeah, Mucho Amor Film. Um, and yeah, follow us. Watch it, share it with your friends. Um, thank you so much for having me. This was so fun!
0: Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you for coming on, Catherine. Tell the lovely people where they can find you.
1: Um, Instagram, Catherine G. Mendoza,
2: uh, Twitter, Kathy Grace24. Yeah,
0: find Catherine. You guys know you can find me at G. Brion on Instagram at G. 80 on the TikTok, which is very fun. Uh, you guys can check out my Amazon special, The Floor is Lava, or my very first special ever, which is also on Amazon now called Pacifically Speaking, uh, all the, or the HBO Ha Festival, which is a new project that just dropped uh, last month. You can check that out on HBO Max. You guys know I love to leave, uh, to sign off the show with a piece of advice my mom gives me to this day, when life hands you a lot of issues, handle it one catastrophe at a time. One catastrophe at a time, people. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you again, Christina. Thank you, Christina. Thank you. Have a good weekend. Have a good weekend, everybody. Bye. Don't go get him. Mm.